Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book, Betsy Timboom, Promise of God, by Mike Evans, with permission of Time Worthy Books, and we are on Chapter 17. That winter, our lives continued to change. The war in Europe drew to a close, and business at the shop picked up. Carol disappeared from our conversations, but the memory of what happened lingered. My initial assessment of them had been correct, but my response to their relationship, poorly framed and badly flawed, had served only to drive Corey and me apart. With a rekindled relationship of my own with Vincent, my eyes were open to my mistake, and after the injury from Carol's unthinkable behavior, Corey and I were closer than ever. We had been sisters before, companions by birth and blood. What we endured together made us companions of the heart. In the following months, winter grew colder, and with it, my relationship with Vincent cooled as well. He was away at the university, and though it wasn't that far by distance, his visits were limited to holidays. I saw him on St. Nicholas Day and again at Christmas, and even though he had only been in school a single semester, I could tell that he was not the same. He no longer looked at me in the longing, infatuated way he did before. When he talked, he spoke not of life and love and happiness, but of issues, historic forces sweeping the continent and the gathering storm on the political horizon, and hundreds of other ideas he'd heard at school. I listened, but the infrequency of his visits and the lack of correspondence let me know that whatever relationship we might have had before was now coming to an end. At first, old regrets returned, and I pummeled myself mentally and emotionally for having turned him away so forcibly when we were younger. Later, as I thought of him and how our relationship had ended, and how things ended with Corey and Carol, I became certain that Corey and I would live in the Bay together to the end. Vincent had been my opportunity to marry, and that opportunity had passed. After Corey's experience with Carol, I was all but certain the moment had passed for her, too. I was thinking about that one day while alone in the shop. Louis was off on an errand. Papa was visiting Rabbi Prince at the rabbi's home, and so the shop was empty except for me. With a few minutes alone, I was beating myself up inside, wondering if I'd heard from God years before when I'd made that decision not to marry, and wondering if I'd heard from him now when we're trying to discern the future path of my relationship with Vincent. In the midst of that, the shop door opened and Papa appeared. He held a single tulip stem with a lovely red bloom on the top. Where did you get that? I asked in amazement. Blooming tulips were a treat any time, but this was the dead of winter. Rabbi Prince, Papa smiled triumphantly. He loves them as much as you and grows them in the winter. When I was over there today, I saw them inside, near the window, and I asked him to send one to you. He laid the tulip on my desk. Rabbi Prince was glad to do it. I gently lifted the flower from the desk and started upstairs to put it in a vase. Tulips, I'd always said, are a sign from God. Rabbi Prince might have sent it, and Papa might have delivered it, but God put the desire to grow them in Prince's heart for just such a day as this, when he could give one to me. In spite of the changes in our personal lives, our daily activities fell into a familiar routine. We rose early, ate breakfast together as a family, listened while Papa read from the Bible and prayed. Afterwards, Noli left for a job as a schoolteacher, Papa and I went downstairs to the shop, and Corey worked upstairs with Mom and Aunt Anna. It was an easy, comfortable pattern, one which we lived all our lives in one form or another, 
and we followed it without question until a day Corey rushed into the shop. Come quickly, she cried in panic. Something's wrong with Mama. I leapt from my seat at the desk and started towards the staircase. Papa, moving quicker than I'd ever seen before, came behind me. We arrived at the top of the stairs to find Mama lying on her back on the kitchen floor. Aunt Annie knelt beside her, wiping her forehead with a damp cloth. Mama's lips moved, and I heard her make a sound, but no one could understand what she was saying. Quick, I said to Corey, get Dr. Van Veen. Without a moment's hesitation, she rushed down the steps, threw open the door, and charged out. Papa glanced over at me. Do you think we should move her to her bed? No, Aunt Annie replied, shaking her head slowly from side to side. We should leave her right here until the doctor arrives. That seemed right to me, and I said so, but Papa just stood there looking as helpless as we all felt. After a moment, he gave a heavy sigh. Yes, he said, in a voice so low I could barely hear it. I suppose you're right. He brought a chair from the dining room table and sat beside Mama. I took a seat on the floor. In a few minutes, the door downstairs opened. Footsteps thundered up the stairs towards us, and then Corey appeared with Dr. Van Veen in tow. He paused when he saw Mama, and something in the way he looked at her made me think he had already knew what was wrong. With deliberate, unrushed effort, he set his black bag on the floor and removed his coat and knelt beside her. Gently, he felt her neck and a little way down her chest. He took a stethoscope from his bag and listened to her heart, checked the pulse in her wrist, and then with the scope, listened to the veins in her neck. After a moment, he leaned forward with his eyes directly over hers and lifted the eyelids from her right eye. He did the same with the left, then sank back on his haunches and looked up at Papa. I think, he said quietly, she's had a stroke. Aunt Annie let out a gasp and tears filled her eyes. From what I can tell, Dr. Van Veen continued, she has a ruptured blood vessel over here. He turned to Mama and pointed to the place above her left temple. We should move her to her bed and get her as comfortable as possible. Corey and Aunt Anna moved to a place on either side of her and slipped their hands beneath her thighs and legs, and Papa and Louis lifted her torso. Dr. Van Veen held her neck and head. With coordinated movement, they lifted her from the floor, carried her to her room, and placed her on her bed. Papa ran his fingers through her hair to brush it away from her face. Then Aunt Annie stepped forward and shooed us out. Leave, she ordered. I will arrange everything, and you can come back to see her then. When we hesitated, she waved her hands at us with an angry look. Go, I, I'll tell you when you can come in. She's my sister, and I'll take care of her now. Papa caught my eyes. We should do as she says, and he started towards the doorway. I followed him out to the hall, and the others came with us. We gathered in the kitchen to talk. What can we do, I asked. I'm afraid there isn't much anyone can do, Dr. Van Veen replied, except keep her comfortable and see how she responds. That's it? Yes, he nodded. That's it. He had picked up his black bag on the kitchen floor when we picked up Mama to carry her. The doctor stooped over and retrieved it. I'll check on her this evening, he said as he moved towards the stairs. If anything happens before then, come get me. I'll be in the office. Shortly after he left, Aunt Annie opened the door to Mama's room and the four of us, Papa, Corey, Aunt Annie and I, quietly stood by her bed. She lay there, eyes staring up at the ceiling, her chest rising and falling with each breath but there was no sign of Mama in her eyes, no fire or purpose or light of character. Tears trickled down my cheeks when I reached up to wipe them away. I saw Corey and Noli were crying, too. Aunt Annie, stoic and strong, stood on the far side near Mama's head, her hands just inches from the pillow. I will not weep, she said stubbornly. I will not give the enemy of my soul the satisfaction of this. 
We took turns sitting with her. Corey went first, followed by Aunt Annie and then me. Not long after I took over, Noli arrived from her teaching job and heard Papa talking to her in the parlor, telling her what happened. From the sound of sobbing that filtered through the wall, I assumed she wasn't taking the news well. But when she came to the room, she was composed. Later in the afternoon, Mama closed her eyes and her jaw went slack. I assumed she was sleeping, but when I pointed this out to Aunt Annie, she was concerned. I do not like this, she grumbled. Look, her head is over to one side, and her foot is pointed in the same direction. Indeed, her feet were beneath the covers, but even so, they were obviously pointed in the direction Aunt Annie noted. Around dusk, Dr. Van Veen called on her. After examining her again, he confirmed she was in a coma. Her vital signs are good, but her brain has suffered a serious injury. She could remain like this for quite some time. Or, he sighed, she might never come out of it. After supper, Noli sat with Mama until it was time for bed. Then Aunt Annie took over and remained with her for the night. For the next two months, Aunt Annie, Corey, Noli, and I took turns sitting with her. But with Noli teaching and me in the shop with Papa, Corey and Aunt Annie did most of the work. Then one day, not long before spring, Corey called for me, and I ran upstairs to find Mama propped on her pillow, trying to talk. Mama had come back as one returns from the dead. We were glad to have her with us, but she was never quite the same. With great and prolonged effort, she eventually was able to get out of bed and sit on her own strength at the dining table. Dr. Van Veen thought it is a miracle, and we all agreed. And that's the end of Chapter 17 and Chapter 18. We'll find out more about Mama. I love you, I'm praying for you, and bye-bye for now.